every church who comes will um, share a little bit of their story. So we'll, we'll hear from everybody. And the idea is to, to create a remnant group interested in missions, willing to pray and fast for mission, have a conversation about mission, and then try to provide support for churches and what they're doing. Yeah, this that's all this is domestic discipleship making. This is not overseas helping those guys. That's a different thing. Father Hayden I leave Monday night. Uh, a lot of people will leave it Tuesday. We'll leave Monday if they have full data. And what city in Dallas? Dallas? Lake Dallas. Oh, I'm going to Dallas this weekend. I should have just going to Dallas? Yeah, for a high school reunion, my first high school reunion. But I should just stay there. You should stay there. We probably can get extra rooms because the retreat center wasn't full. We didn't have to so we have we we could add people if we wanted to. But you know, I mean it's a thing going on, so it's it, you know, you uh you're welcome, but yeah, I mean, let us know if you want to do that. Something, not something you just drop in on. You no, have to no, no, no. Yeah. He lives in New Braunfels. It's, a lot, it's about a, uh, less than an hour out of San Antonio. No, no, he was good. His uh, kids all live in Texas, so that's what he went. All right, 1030. Let's pray. Bless the Lord who has caused all to be scriptures written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us our Savior, Jesus Christ. And incidentally, because of that mission retreat next week, there will be neither mass nor Bible class next week. We'll all be there. There's nobody to fill in. <laughs> so we're in John, First John three, and. Um, Some of the themes that, you know, to, to refresh our memory, some of the themes that John is uh, focused on. First uh, John, much like um, John's Gospel, was focused, John's Gospel focused on the Incarnation, the Word was made flesh, and John began by telling us that, that he was going to communicate what he'd seen and touched and handled concerning the Word of Life. So uh, the tangible historical reality of Christ is emphasized by John. Then what's emphasized is that he, is, uh, he and the apostles are witnesses to that, to that historical reality. And they deliver that to the church, which receives that witness. And then in, in, the, in the church, receiving that witness and living a life in Christ through the spirit that comes to the, to, to the church through Christ and the apostles, living a life in Christ characterized by, um, by, by love for one another and obedience to the commandments of Jesus. The community, and that, that is, is a very important thing for John, and that, and that witness of love, and therefore aberrations from that which we've heard from the beginning uh, of the gospel, the incarnation, the faithful witness manifesting in the community are going to be a lack of love, you know, or, or, or the denial that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Those are all marks of someone who's denying this historical reality. And, and we talked last week, it's important, you know, it's just more you kind of reflect on John. It is this concrete historical reality to which the apostolic apostles give witness, which resides in the church, in the body, um, as the as the body of Christ, which she participates in the Eucharist, which is a physical, tangible thing through which she continually feeds on uh, a, a living, embodied Lord. 
And now today we'll get another aspect of this where it, and this life is moving towards a goal, the completion of life in the body. And John's um, probably by, by common consent addressing um, what were called the, as we talked about this, the ancient Gnostic heresies. And they could be contrasted with these points of doctrine and belief on almost every point. The Gnostic her, uh, heresies were based on teachers who had their secret vision. They weren't eyewitness to this historical reality. They had a vision, and they came and tried to share the special secret Gnostic uh, knowledge or vision. Um, and it, their visions led to a kind of spiritually disembodied salvation, which often didn't connect to holy behavior in the body or love or anything. So, um, thus that's the contrast there. Okay, well, with that, we'll jump into um, what First John chapter 3 has to say. Um, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. So, I think this is, um, the power of that statement is sometimes missed in the modern Western world when the doctrine of sin has been diminished and everyone, oh, we're all children of God. Everyone just assumes, you know, oh, you don't have, really have to do anything to become a child of God. You just are. That's not, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that through sin, humanity is estranged from God. And, and so um, the privilege of calling God Abba Father is given through the new birth, the gift of the Spirit, by which we are born again as children of God. So this, this is trying in the liturgy when we come to present the sacrifice of Christ, remember that, and, and through that, remembering that action of Christ on our behalf and being joined to it, now we're bold to say, Our Father. So, the prayer, Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, is not a generic prayer for everyone to say. It's a specifically Christian prayer to be said by those who've been made children of God by the gift of the Spirit. Uh, St. Paul says in Galatians, God has sent forth the Spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's where the, the confession, so that's the, the love he's given. We, we're children of God. Sometimes we take it for granted because in our culture, we just assume everyone, everyone can talk to, you know, talk to God. There's no real barrier to overcome. So we, we miss the, the real impact of that sometimes. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, who's the him there? Right. Yeah, I think Jesus. Did not know Jesus. What's the evidence that it didn't know Jesus? What's that? They yeah, they killed him. <laughs> you know, if you know he's the son of God, you don't kill him. You, you worship him. You, so, and, and so, um, therefore, the opposition we experience because we're children of God mirrors the opposition he experienced to who's the Son of God. And the more we live as children of God in the world, truly representing the Father and, and the revelation in Christ, the more we'll experience opposition. And we'll get into a little bit later on when he talks about um, Cain and Abel. But, but when we do what's right and aren't afraid to speak the truth, it exposes what people are doing wrong and they don't want to hear about it. So that's where it comes to hostility. Um, verse 2. 
Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. So what's this talking about? Um, when will he be revealed? It's interesting the language here because um, we talk about the second coming, but there's um, a number of places in the New Testament where um, it's called the appearance of Christ. And, and even the word uh, um, Apocalypse, which usually is is seen to understood be understood as you know destruction, really means revelation. So the, the, the so, so he'll be made known, and the revealing I think would have the idea because part of the um, The misunderstanding of the second coming geographically is that it gives the impression that Jesus lives a, a long way away, maybe geographically a couple planets away, and then sometime he'll journey back. But the truth is that Jesus lives in what we might best understand as a different dimension of reality that is really close, but in a sense far away from close to us who believe we're children of God, who, who, who can pray, but far away from the world that doesn't know him. So the revelation will be the unveiling, the removing of the barrier to see into that dimension of reality. And to understand this a little bit, um, you know, we just say, for example, that, um, well, most people believe in angels in one way or another. Um, have you ever seen one? We assume they're there. So the revelation would be the making known of that which we can't see. There's um, a story in the Old Testament. I believe it's, I can't remember if it's Elijah or Elisha, uh, where uh, the Syrian army surrounds his home because they want him to, the Syrian king wants him to command to, to tell him how the Israel army is getting all this military secrets. And the servant's afraid, and he says, uh, open his eyes that he may see. And certainly he opens his eyes, and they see all these angels surrounding. They were always there, but they've just revealed. So Jesus is always close. He will just be revealed, that which is hidden now. And so this, this is part of... Um, the sacrament and sacraments are ways that um, hidden things are made known. Part of what we do in Eucharist is enter into through the um, actions and symbols and words of the liturgy, the reality that's not available that we don't just look at and see. And as we do that, it's revealed to us. Uh, and the ancient word, the sacrament, is a Latin. It comes from the Greek mystery. And it's also a word that's misunderstood because we hear mystery, they kind of what's going on. But in the New Testament, mystery is something hidden that's been made known. And that's why in the spirit now, we can begin to see things. We can understand the sacramental, the hidden realities made known in Christ, revealed to us in various ways, but the world can't see those things. Well, 
Well, I, I think dimension might be a way to so think of it. where do we get hints about that in the Bible? What's that? Where do we, where do we, how do we ascend it? Well, I, I think you, you, we get it um, in um, the, the juxtaposition between the idea that you know, he ascended, he returned to the Father, but also the, 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 the teaching that Jesus isn't very far away from you. Uh, he will never leave you or forsake you, so he's not really far away. So he went somewhere that's far away, but it's also close. I think it's interesting. Ponder Well, he did, and, and he revealed himself, but then he was, at dinner he just went. So all of a sudden he's gone. So now you see me, now you don't, kind of thing. But it's it's the point would be that um, I think you're following on your point is that so he made himself known, but also it, so so this revelation therefore is the idea is that we're living in a reality of a thing in life in Christ, abiding in Him. We're looking for him to appear. And this is this is something we, we might just um, digress on for a minute because I think it's really central to understanding the proper orientation of the Christian. Because a lot of the talk about um, the second coming or his appearance has been caught up for... Um, you know, in, in, in ideas like, well, the early church thought he was going to come right away, and he didn't come right away, and we don't know when he's coming, so we don't pay much attention to that. We just go on with other things. But the chronology or the, 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 the time of this coming is really not the point of our hope for the coming. It is that, that the encounter with Christ is always the telos of the Christian life. And so we live a life where we come to our prayer and in some way encounter Christ, God in Christ in the Spirit. And this is epitomized in our, again, in the sacrament, where we come and, uh, in a sense, Christ descends to be present with us at the altar, and, and we come and meet him. And in a sense, that prefigures this, when he's revealed, we'll, we'll, we'll see him as he is. And now we see him, we see, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So we're always living a life that's aimed at the encounter with Jesus, and we encounter Jesus regularly. It's just that at some point in time, we envision that as being ultimately transformative. Um, and... So it, this is why the New Testament always and everywhere presents the goal of the Christian life as the, as the coming or the appearance of Jesus. has very, very little about dying and going to heaven, which is seen as an interim thing you do while we're waiting for him to come. And we can look at that, uh, I mean, just to give a, a, a sense of a few other passages, uh, if you turn, for example, to Philippians, um, it goes uh, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. But if you look at a, a, um, Philippians chapter, chapter 3, Um, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according 
to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So this is what St. Paul says to the Philippians, we're waiting for Christ to come. And even in when you get to, um, for example, Thessalonians, if we go to uh, a couple uh, epistles to the right, Philippians and Colossians, then Thessalonians, um, Chapter four, first, yeah, First Thessalonians, chapter four, um, verse um, thirteen. We'll start with. This is our funeral epistle. We read this at uh, a record. So he says, "I want to just highlight the first sentence here. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep." So some Christians had died, and they were concerned that those Christians who died would miss the resurrection. So again, the point is, I'm not, you know, there's all kinds of ways we have to explain that out, but the point is that the Christian hope was not to die and go to heaven. The Christian hope has always and only been that Christ will come and complete the work in the resurrection. And when we die and our body is separated from our spirit, and our body goes to the ground, our spirit goes to somehow be with Christ or asleep or in paradise, all which are synonymous words, it is an intermediate but not a final state. And we're waiting for that moment when that spirit and will be joined with a new body and will enter into the thing. So he says, we don't want to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain into the coming of the Lord, who by no means precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, this is erroneously interpreted in a, 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 a kind of thinking called dispensationalism to, to be termed as what's called the rapture. But if, you're, if you pay close attention, it's not the rapture. This is the resurrection. And so if you haven't died when the Lord comes, you'll be spontaneously transformed. That's, that's what that's saying. But the rapture idea was that you'd be taken away somewhere and life goes on in the world. And this is the culmination of time. And the best... Um, explanation of why we're caught up in the air as the Lord comes, I've read is by N.T. Wright, who says that our, the king is coming into the new creation. And there's this, tra this transformation. Jesus calls it a regeneration. And the whole creation is restored. The king is coming, and he gathers those who are his, and they follow him into their inheritance of the new creation. So he's not, we're not caught up to be taken away. We're caught up, follow him into the new creation, the new, the new uh, thing. Um, and then one other passage, just to kind of get some of the, um, I think that it gets a little bit more of, at what John is getting at, is Romans chapter 8. Um, Chapter 8, verse um, 22. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves 
eagerly waiting for the adoption, redemption of our body. And here St. Paul portrays um, the creation, the groaning, is like birth pangs, that there's life within us growing to a fruition that is beyond the confines of this life, and that the creation itself, the physical world, has a telos, it will be completed, it also longs with us. And so the, this idea of longing for, for this completion is the central Christian disposition of life. And it doesn't matter whether you die first. It's what you long for. And we experience it in our encounter with Christ as we're growing into that which we're becoming. And with that thought, I mean, we can go back to John now, 1 John 3, 2. Um, when he has been revealed, we shall be like him, because we'll be given bodies like his body. But John is, and each one gets a different aspect. John, I think, here is more, because um, he says we'll see him as he is, and it has more of this um, sense of, of what, what the tradition calls the beatific vision will see him, and the vision of him will change us. And that's the longing to see, which, which includes the body, but John just focuses more really on just seeing. And so, in the Christian sense of time, and this is why that this weekly sense of time and the annual calendar of time, um, if we see it rightly, will help us to understand this, that um, time is always moving towards its completion or telos in Christ. And so each week begins in Christ in the Eucharist on the Lord's Day, in which we participate again in the resurrection and receive life. We go out into the world as witnesses, and we come back on the eighth day, which is the completion, because the Lord is coming, which is also the first day. But each of these cycles of weeks moves us forward, because this Sunday is closer to the, to the telos than last Sunday. And the annual calendar of the church, we walk through from Advent to Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, and Trinity. We come back and we live through this. And each feast has this threefold sense to it. Um, remembering some past event that we read about in the scriptures experiencing that past event in some new way right now by the way that Christ comes to us through the Spirit in anticipation of the completion of that in the telos of all times. This is the quintessential Christian disposition that John is really getting rooted in an historical thing, experiencing the present moment, looking forward to the completion. This with this this verse we know that when he is revealed, we should be like him, we should see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him, we want we want to be like him, and we, we strive to be like him, purifies himself. This this is what, what makes us clean. We grow in this vision even now, we'll see him as he is. Then we'll go on to verse four. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, John has already told us that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And it's very important that what we should understand St. John is talking about here with this idea you don't sin. He's not really thinking about um, this life that is so uh, flawlessly moral perfect that you never make a mistake. He's thinking that um, he's talking really about the sort of what we might call the practice of sin. 
where you're living a life where you're habitually doing that which God calls you not to do. And he and so if you if you're practicing this, that's lawlessness. He was manifested, Christ came to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. We don't sin. So verse six, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has made us seen him or known him. That is, does not practice sin. Whoever by the course, we get, we incidentally do selfish things, we get distracted, and we, we, we are aware of it, and we make a we confession, and we come back, and of course, every liturgy has a confession. But this is part of the practice of righteousness. Part of the practice of righteousness is awareness of what we've done wrong and growing in the right. But if we willfully say, I'm out of here, I'm doing this other thing, that's the practice that Satan's talking about. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And you see a, a certain parallel here. John had, John really thinking about the community of the church and that those who sin leave that community and fellowship and are outside. The devil sinned from the beginning. He left the fellowship of God and the angelic host to go outside to proclaim his own thing. And note, note the parallel then to the sort of Gnostic idea that, that the fellowship with God is that which is from the beginning in the heavenly realm, and that which isn't has removed itself and thinks it has a better way that's rooted only in the mind of that person, that angel, because there's no history to the better way to make the world even. It's, 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 and that's, that's the characteristic of heresy that's been brought out here. So, um, the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. But the devil wrought in rebelling, in tempting humans, is now conquered by the Son of God. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, I, I, if you read this, cannot practice sin, there's a certain biological reality, spiritual biological reality, that if you live in Christ, live a life of prayer, and he's with you, it's going to be really hard for you to, to continue on in the practice of doing the wrong thing. And if you can, if somebody can, it's an evidence they're not really in Christ. So that's the idea of the dichotomy here between uh, cannot sin before God. The children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now he shifts from a generic practice of righteousness uh, to, the, to the tangible sense of loving a brother. So, love for one another is the evidence that we are in him. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. We have love for one another, which also comes from John. Back to verse 9. I have a problem with that. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. I have been born of God and I sin. So well, again, if, if you if you practice sin, do you practice sin? Well, it, it is pretty. If you if you take that teaching in the overall context to John, it is pretty clear. He's already said if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. So clearly, in, in it's a practice of righteousness and the practice of sin. The practice of righteousness includes the reality 
of temptation and occasional drifts from which we must return and make good confession. That's the practice of righteous saints. You cannot take a verse like this out of context. You have to look at the whole scripture. I also think that, that, that he's thinking about, he's thinking about this more relationally than, than, than we are. He's thinking that if you abide in Christ, you're practicing righteousness, and your righteousness because of that relationship. And in that relationship, it's not a daily, you did this, you did that. You're, you're in that relationship, your sins are being cleansed. As you as you just are naturally become aware, making and he had that actually back last time when he said um, that that uh, I find that verse is coming to me here. Maybe it's the first time. Um, Those who are children of God. For God's very nature is in them. That is their father, they cannot be what, what translation is that? Oh, I it so many years ago. Good news, yeah. So good news is good. It, it, it's, it's a more free translation. It can help with the meaning. The Greek text doesn't say it like that, but that's what it means. So I think that's that's why that, that acts kind of like a commentary on the passage. It's very good, yeah, that way. So, yeah. It's uh, John that... Uh, one nine, he who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, and there's also the um, let's see here. Uh, is that is that word there that continually cleanse us? I I learned at one point that it, that there's some word in there that that indicates that we're continually cleansed. Well, it, you know, to cleanse is a present tense verb, so it, it, it's something that's happening. It's not a... Um, uh, now, and here's another thing, Verse back to verse 7, it's actually verse I was thinking about. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The very act of walking in Christ in the fellowship of the community has the effect of working our cleansing. And the fact that we incidentally sin is not significant in the relational space of connection with God and each other. If we leave the community outside of that relational space, we're in a state of sin. That will produce sins. And when we're in a state of connection with God, that will produce the fruit of righteousness, which is not the same as Moral perfection. You know, it's it's not about it's about the motive of love, and the motive of love will be sometimes it might be just as we live. You know, sometimes you know, I, I incidentally you do something that maybe didn't fully express love, but your practice of righteousness will be revealed that you'll be aware of that, and you'll you know you'll move forward and and and, and learn and grow from it. So. The, the other thing too about uh, does not sin that's it's not really what John's getting at but I, I think I'll highlight it is that um, and why the community is so important is that um one way to look at this is we have to do the right things. We're not we're righteous, practicing righteousness. We're in God, and we're not going to get nailed. But um, my experience now is that most people walk about with a sense of condemnation, and um, it's not so much that they need a greater moral review as they need to understand it's okay. And to be freed from the burden of accusation, that's a necessary first step. Then you're free to love. Because you're no longer trying to, okay, I just try. You know, that's legalism. It's like a direct, and you, and you like, I did this, like, you know, and you, you develop a whole apparatus of how you justify yourself. And um, 
the idea of living in a relation with Christ that you're already justified. And your incidental sins don't make you out of the kingdom, into the kingdom, out of the kingdom, into the kingdom. You, you, you're, you're, you live in a state any more than when your own child, because John uses this, you know, does something selfish that afternoon. You're out of the family to get that straight. You know, you're, you're going to correct, there'll be some discipline, but it's, you're in that space and there's justification. So this is why leaving that space, and it's interesting, uh, too, that Gnosticism, ancient and modern, uh, in, in the esoteric forms of Gnosticism, was very anti-communal. You know, you had to do your own thing. You know, and we see this today. I find my own path. And um, that's false. Because you can't. John is saying you have to love one another in community. And, and the fact that you, you're committed to the work of loving the difficult other people in community and not going to run away from it means you're facing yourself and your own difficulty. And, and so the communal dimension of the church is really, really important. It's not incidental to it, especially not to John. Um, so, not love this brother, verse 11. Um, this is the message that we heard from the beginning, we should love one another. From the beginning, clearly of time, but also from the beginning of the gospel, where Jesus, who they saw and touched, said, love one another. Not as Cain was at the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So, why was that? I mean, it doesn't really make sense on, on the face of it that, that um, you have a situation where one, two brothers, one does the bad, one does the good. Why does the bad one want to kill the good one? What what does the presence of the of the good one do to the pre, to the bad one? Makes him look bad. Huh? Makes him look bad. Makes him look bad. It, well, or or it's revelatory. When you see the one doing right, you realize, oh, I didn't do right. So the real thing we need to do then is get rid of the evidence. And so Jesus, in the law, is in a sense too in the um, in the um, the sense that they murdered him, confronted Israel with its sin by being the righteous one, and they're all very angry with him because in him articulating and representing the essence of the Torah, he highlighted the various ways that they weren't actually doing. It. So when we live in a state of love, a lot of people won't like it. And, um, and especially him, he, he says, uh, do not marvel, my brother, if the world hates you. And in a sense, as, as the world has drifted, um, there is sometimes a kind of hatred that accrues to the church. I want to make a distinction here because sometimes um, the church seems to deserve it when it gets and it says stupid things and, uh, and and behaves stupidly or or has its own scandals that are. But but when it simply articulates the truth about something and the world doesn't like being confronted with the reality that what it's doing is not that thing. And in general, that's the kind of thing we see more and more of in a world where um, all the standards of what is true and right are, are being rejected in terms of gender, sexuality, all these things. And we, we, we stand for, represent the truth that you can't know, you can't make it up. Not like that. People don't like people who can't do that. And it, it's interesting also, too, that the, the very, um, not to just light very briefly on the gender thing, which is um, a big topic that I want to do injustice to, but a lot of this has to do with not um, scientific evidence that somebody who was this wants to be that, but an inner feeling that I, I, you know, I want to, I want to be who I want to be, and that you can, versus the concreteness of John's gospel, that no, this is who you are. And there's a real struggle, I want to be clear here, in the human condition, in our disorder, 
people struggle deeply with issues of you know, attraction and sexuality and things like that. And so the church should not um, approach those struggles with a voice of condemnation, but nor can we approach him by saying, your answer is to pretend you can be what you can't be. That's, and, and part of the, um, the redemptive path of the cross, and we all have to participate in this, is the truth that we're all called to suffer because we all participate in this disorder called sin. And we all have things we'd like to do and have that we can't. We all struggle with something that we aren't probably going to fully conquer in this life. And the call is not to try to find a way to get rid of it, but to connect in our pain with Christ, who on the cross took the pain of the world upon himself, and unite our struggle for righteousness with his atoning sacrifice and pick up our cross and live faithfully in that space. And I, the message of the church, that is more fulfilling for people. Just look at the evidence out there. The people who think, I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, good luck with that. You know, it, it doesn't work very well. It results in high rates of suicide. Because why does it work well? Because it's not real. It, it's, it's not real. And that's the, the thing is, you just because you want it to be a way that way, you can't make it that way by wanting it to be that way. It is what it is. And that's exactly what John is saying about the incarnation. It, this word is made flesh. It's a re, The world is a certain way, which means it's not a certain other way. And the modern world is caught up much, very much in the idea that, that I can out of my interior sense of self, be whoever I want to be. And it's a lie. You can't be whoever you want to be. It's, I, we can prove it. But it, it's, it's, you know, it's even, even said in innocent ways, no, you can, you can be whatever you want to be. Well, no, you can't. If you're, if you're, if you're, you know, unless you're really super talented, if you're five foot eight, you're probably not going to play in the NBA. If you're if 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 you you know if you're not born with a natural affinity for the intellect, you're probably not going to be a professor. Th that's fine. You you are something though, and there's some consolation gifts that you are that you should um, gravitate towards. But so the idea that, that I think the offense of the church's message is we call people to pick up their cross, and that confronts no, you can't. And it's not just that you can't, it's like, that's not going to work. It's the same old thing about the Genesis 3 thing, where you see the tree, it's going to, it's too good, and then you do it, you end up naked, ashamed, afraid, and alienated, like now. So we're not going to lie to people, but when we tell the truth, it's not really popular. But, but so the truth in love, and this is one thing I have to be careful, it's not this, you're bad, you're bad. There's real struggles. And we, ought, we need to be, on one hand, compassionate, but also truthful. And this kind of gets on to a little bit, I think, of John's uh, uh, the, the, I'll pick up that with the theme of love in the second point I wanted to make. So he says, don't um, do not marvel, my brethren, verse 13, the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Who does not love his brother abides in death. That's an interesting statement. Our love in community is the evidence that we are living in the life, which suggests that if it's not there, um, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abides in And this is for us, though, we didn't murder. I'm not a murderer, you know. Uh, well, you've heard it said by old, don't murder. But I say to you, if you're angry, without a cause. <laughs> and so what happens for us in walking in the light is we get a subtle animosity kind of stuff. And then we, we come to our prayer and go, oh, that's right. <laughs> I'm angry at that person. Why am I angry? And I can, I can realize what it is about me that, that, that I can deal with. 
So we have we have to so if but if we allow subtle animosities to grow into full blown hatred, that's where the the anger goes into the murder. And so we just have to realize that's why in the Eucharist, you need to truly and repent of your sins and in love and charity with your neighbors. Now, that might just be you dealing with an animosity you haven't expressed. Or if you have expressed it, it probably means, hey, working, you know, it's, it's a complex, well, not complex. There's a range of things that that might require us to do, but we have to attend to it. Why? Well, don't you want that? If someone's mad at you, do you want them to be simmeringly angry and or do you want them to con- do you want them to deal with that? Maybe we can tell you what it is they're dealing with and have some kind of healing there. So this is the dynamic we have to foster. And and this is why the community is so important, because it's staying in the community with difficult people that, that exposes that in you. And that's why people leave the community. Wow, oh, it's hypocrites. Well, and you were different? You, you were the one righteous person in this community of hypocrites? Well, no, you're, and you sit and you realize, okay, yeah, there's people, and you're like, oh, I guess I kind of do that too. And what happens actually in the transformation is, and this is why learning to experience grace for yourself, to understand, yeah, I guess I am kind of a hypocrite. My sins are forgiven. Oh, now I can, I can, Though you have done something to me, I can now, instead of responding with that payback, I can come back and I can I can try to love. And so this is where he says, um, verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Lay down our lives for the brethren. So I just want us to save us from our, this, in this love that John is talking about, this sentimentality kind of love. Love is hard to know, how do I seek the good of this other person? It might be, hey, what you're doing is wrong. i got to confront you. Or I have to, you know, there's the, the dynamics of it's not an easy thing. And it is a pervert sentimentality in moral theology is a perversion of love. It's a substitution of warm feelings for the actions that actually seek the good of. And this is what we do when we when we just work in that sentimental way. So we lay down our lives to the brethren. How what am I supposed to do? How how do I do that? And I would say a couple of things about this, um, about laying down our lives for the brethren. One thing we do is we're just there in community and we're available and we see okay because if we're a body of Christ with many members and many gifts if we're there our gifts are available we can see and we're not going to and the more that and then that geometric principle every, every all the gifts are there we can do what we're called to do and not do what we're not called to do but when we check out we're not laying down our lives together we're running to the comfort of our own place But whoever has this world's goods, verse 17, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let's not love in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Um, so the first thing we have to be, be, be clear about here is... Um, The word here is brother, so he's talking in the first instance about the Christian community. And in the community, we see a brother or sister in need, that we can actually do something with and don't expend ourselves. How does the love of God abide in us? Now, this can be simplistically meaning that every time I see a need, I'm supposed to shell out some, some money. And... Uh, we got to be careful with that because it leads to a bad approach to homelessness and other where we're just paying people to sit on street corners where they make, you know, hundred bucks a day and stuff like that. So this does not mean that like you could, this could tug, you know, okay, well, there's a guy, there's my brother sitting there begging, oh, and I have some money, 
you know, and this happens at, you know, say one of the Trader Joe's or something, it came out with the dinner and there's a and your you this guilt hits you that but that doesn't really solve that problem. That's not really now if you wanted to do something, you might engage in conversation and it's a complex problem how you're going to deal with that. My my point simply is that um, Love here, he's thinking about the dynamic within the, the, the church community. It extends beyond that because we love all, but outside the community, it's, it's, um, the challenge of how we help those, how we reach out. There, there are general works that are generally outreach oriented and participate in. Love is hard. I guess that's the main point. And the point here, though, in a very practical sense is if you see a need, practical, defined, you can meet and decide I'm not going to do that because it's inconvenient. That's what John's talking about. They pause the line. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due what it is. Kiss me in head smile. Alright. <laughs> Verse 19. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If we're feeling guilty, God is greater and can help us conquer that. But if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. But again, the framework of this is ties in the promises Jesus made in John's gospel as well. Again, it is... Um, the framework of we're abiding in Christ, we're living in Christ. And in within that realm of, of his will for us, we pray for things. And the more we are oriented towards the life of living in Christ, the more our prayer will be oriented towards asking for wisdom, for things we need decision to make decisions about, um, grace, or strength, or things we need to do to fulfill the will of God. Um, Obviously, there's prayers for healing and things like that, but we know those won't always be answered. We know that's not what he's saying, because it's not God's will to heal everybody. They're all going to die. So we know sometimes it's not going to happen, and sometimes they're difficult things, and this would relate to, say, Gethsemane. Uh, Father, if it be possible, let this pass for me, a prayer for something. Nevertheless, not my will. So, so there's sometimes there's 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 so walking in the will of God is is and we the, the things we we the things we specifically know God wants us to experience are joy and peace. We're told specifically by James we can ask for wisdom and receive it. Um, and these are the, so those are the kind of things that we can certainly ask for provision our daily bread and things like that, but, but the spiritual treasuries that God gives us, a growth in faith, hope, and love, those kinds of things, we'll receive those things. But to the idea that we can use that promise, living in Christ, to say, oh, I, I want to get rich, or I want to do this, or I want to do that, is though we can extract a request from its rootedness in the life and telos of life. God will give you what isn't good for you in the progress of your life. Towards the philosophy of life. And part of the idea here that, that we what we ask to receive is to keep his commands and do those things that are pleasing in the sight, just as we have children who are doing the right thing, we like to do things for them. So our Heavenly Father, it's his pleasure to do good things for us as we do, as we try to do his will. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name 
of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us command. Three things, faith in Jesus and love for those uh, who, uh, who bear the image of Jesus. And who keeps his commandments, abides in him, and he in him. I mean, this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit who he has given us. It's the Spirit that is the, the medium of prayer and connection with God, living in Christ in the Spirit, and that connection we have is how we know that we're in it, that we experience this. Thing. Stop there. We will not meet again next week. Uh, we'll meet a week from next week and we'll study First John 4. Let's pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Good with you all. Connie, Amy, Cheryl, Ed. Cheryl, did she bilocated?